Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. We're in the middle of our series uh, called Why Church, and we're really asking ourselves uh, the question, you know, it's a particularly challenging moment in the life of uh, most churches and uh, we're kind of asking ourselves, like, what are we doing this for? Uh, why are we engaged in this? Why are we pushing so hard to make it happen? Why are we uh, trying to do church at a time when it feels like fewer and fewer people are trying to do that? And we're basing some of that uh, content or some of our thinking out of uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, just sort of core passage in uh, chapter 3, uh, where Paul is sort of saying, hey, I really want the, the world to know. I want you guys to understand uh, that the church isn't just uh, there because it's a, sort of a random collection of people that kind of like each other and kind of like me, that, that I have ultimately a great purpose, uh, that my glory would be known through the church. And so he's talking to the, the people in Ephesus, and he writes them this letter, and he says, now to him who is able to abundantly, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. And so we look at that. We look at our lives, and we often read a text like that, and we say, man, so that uh, the power that's at work in us, as we sort of think, yeah, in me, and in you, 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 and he's a bunch, able to do a bunch of good things in us all individually. But what the text really means is that he's uh, wanting to do something powerful. He's wanting to be powerfully glorified through us collectively through us as a body, through us together. That word us there in the Greek really speaks to uh, a, a group of people doing something together. And so as we go through the series, we've looked you know, briefly at the idea that uh, part of our ministry to glorify uh, God in the world is to just simply glorify him directly. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that sometimes what we do in church and why we come together is just to praise him for his own sake. And if we got nothing at all out of it, that would be completely fine because he's completely worthy of all the time and the effort. Uh, last week, we talked about what it means to sort of praise him and, and praise him through truth, praise him through an understanding of who he is, praise him through the gospel, not as much through our own needs. And then we are transformed into his likeness as we behold his glory. As we praise him, uh, we become what we love. So as we become worshipers, we become like the one we're worshiping. And so we talked about that. And this week and the next week, we're going to talk about the ministry that we have to one another. What does being in the church mean in terms of our commitment to one another, in terms of uh, our relationships with one another? What does it mean to be the church together? What does this us really mean? What does it mean to be a covenantal people, a people who belong to one another. Um, and when we look at that, uh, what we think is that God is actually calling us in our mindset uh, to make a pretty significant shift. He's calling us to shift, uh, to be a people who are not coming to church because uh, we're attracted to the programs or we're attracted to the stuff that's going on or we sort of are kind of like the people that are there and we kind of fit with them and, and we're kind of in alignment with them so let's all be together at that particular church. Uh, we're coming not to be because we're attracted to it as much as because there is a deep and abiding commitment. There is a reality that whether or not you are actually coming to church, if you are a believer... You are a part of something. 
You're part of the church. You are a part of a covenantal community. And we're going to talk about what that means and the implications of it uh, for our lives. Because right now we are a people that are just attracted to many things, right? We like shiny things, right? We like shiny, interesting things. And we don't easily commit ourselves to one thing or another. There's, there's no place where this is more clearly seen than in, in the divorce rates, both in the church and out of the church. Uh, people uh, so easily become attracted to one another and fall in love with one another and feel all of those feelings. And then just a few years later, when we look at the statistics, a person will so easily fall out of love with that person that they fell in love with and fall in love with somebody else. And we'll do the same in the church. We see that uh, time and time again. Yeah, I love this place. I love this community. I love this place where I've been. Uh, but eh, I kind of don't like it anymore. The preaching's kind of changed and the worship is a little bit different and they're doing this merger thing. And I don't know if we're going to really want to continue on with that. Let's just go and meander over somewhere else. We, we have uh, something in us that doesn't really easily understand uh, commitment. We just go after the shiny and bright thing uh, that, we, that we kind of like. Uh, and we see that really coming out of COVID. Um, when you look at the, what sociologists are saying about the church, you know, we sort of imagined that more people would come back post-COVID. Uh, but all across the board in North America, um, there, there are about 30% of people who just checked out of church altogether and just didn't come back over the pandemic. 30% of the church in North America just disappeared. Just said, I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm just not committed to it. It's just not meeting my needs. It's a little frightening for us. And then within those who have stayed around their churches and said, yeah, I, I'm going to still continue to be a believer, there's been this massive reorganization that's happened. And we see the church even in our region or the church in North America has now reorganized itself in terms of where people are attending along not lines of doctrine or theology or, or what we really believe about God and who he is. For the most part, the church in North America is relatively well united against the core of, of what Christianity is. But we've reorganized ourselves in the church by our reaction to a governmental policy on health care. That's how the church has reorganized itself. Do we realize how insane that is? You realize how crazy that is? That the church of the living God, bodies that are meant to be united and anchored and held together by the power of the Holy Spirit, have reorganized themselves on the basis of healthcare policy in the, by the government of Canada and Ontario. We should be feeling something here, right? We should be feeling something here. What does our covenantal commitment to our local church bodies and to our local communities mean if something that small can reshape us and reorganize us as a people? And so we need to wrestle with that reality that we don't really know what covenant means. We don't really know what belonging means. We don't really know what commitment means. We don't even know in some ways what the church means. And what that's done to our testimony uh, to, in terms of what, how the world sees the church, it's greatly diminished their belief that Jesus is among us. We see uh, Jesus in, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays that we might be one so that the world will know that he sent us. 
We are not one. And the world does not know that he sent us when we're not one. So we've greatly diminished our witness to the beauty and glory of Jesus by being a people who just church shop and hop and, and wander all over the place. There's something that the Lord wants to say to us. So we want to go and, and back up to this question and ask ourselves, what is the church? Uh, or rather, who is the church? Who is the church? And so we're just going to take a little bit of a dive into uh, some of the biblical text, biblical understanding, and some of the theological understanding of what the church is to arrive at who the church is, to arrive at a reality of, yeah, the church, not just us locally, not just us, us in our body, but who is the church as an organization that Jesus instituted and established on the earth thousands of years ago. So let's just go to biblical foundations. And let's just say, first off, this is the first truth. Uh, that we want to... Have my slides not been changing? Over there. Okay, great. Okay, yeah, so um, one, the church is visible and invisible. The church is visible and invisible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, You can see people who are in the church right now. If you look to your left and you look to your right, you can see the church. These people here who are gathered are the church. And you can see that there's the church down the street and there's the church... Uh, which is a gathering place of people uh, in Almont and people in Canada and people all around the world. You can see that right now in this present moment, uh, we are the church. That's a good and obvious uh, thing. The church is a visible deal. Uh, but what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology in church is the church is not only that which we see now, but it is the community of believers of all time and all space. Do you realize that everybody who has died and passed on from the time of Christ until now is the church? And the book of Revelation looks back at that moment, looks back at us and sees uh, that there will be this moment of the gathering of people of every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne. We need to understand and recognize that that we're not just part of a local church, we're not just part of a little body, but we're part of something that is massive, that spans not only the globe, but spans all of time uh, from now until the return of Christ. Uh, Timothy uh, says, uh, you know, in, in 2 Timothy, the letter from Paul, he just says, you know, the Lord knows who are his. There's a church that is invisible to you and I. We can't see everybody who has ever existed and who has ever loved Jesus. But the Lord knows who is his. The Lord sees the whole church. And we want to recognize that we're part of that. We're part of that really great and big thing. Uh, the images you see on your screen Uh, That window up there is one of the sites that people believe is possibly uh, the site of the original gathering of uh, believers in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2. And we don't know for sure if that's it, but that's one of the places that historians point to. And here's another gathering of believers where the Holy Spirit came and sometimes falls in power. There's a, there's a body that has existed for all of that time. The Westminster Catechism says this, the Catholic or universal church, that's not large Catholic, not Roman Catholic, that's the word for universal. The universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have ever been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ. The head thereof. And is the head, the spouse, the body, the fullness of him, that filled all in all. We're part of something massive. We're part of something big. 
And not only is the church uh, something that spans time, it's something that spans uh, geography and spans scale, our understanding of size. Uh, we can look at the church and say, yeah, we can sort of encompass this and say, yeah, this sort of feels like the church. Uh, when we go to one of the larger churches in the city, like uh, the Life Center or Bethel, some of us might think, man, this is too big. This doesn't feel like church. I don't know where I fit in. But that's church too. Um, the church is the people who meet anywhere. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be. And so we see all of these beautiful examples in the New Testament where uh, the church meets in a house. I greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me, not only me, but for all the churches of the Gentiles. So he's referring to all of these communities. We're grateful for them. I greet also the church that meets in their house. So there's the churches of all the Gentiles, and then there's the church that meets in their house. And then earlier in Acts chapter 2, 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They were uh, people breaking bread in their homes, breaking bread in uh, little places, in, in little groups. And that's the church. Uh, of course, we know that part that in the temple, uh, they would meet in the temple courts. And we see um, in Acts 5.12, the apostles performed signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet in Solomon's colonnade. And so if you look at that image of the temple, it's just a mock-up of what it would have looked like. That wall that's along this, this side here, this sort of uh, bottom right that wall, that is a whole line of pillars, basically rooms that are along the wall of the temple. It's called Solomon's Colonnade. And the church used to gather there. So if you say, no, the church, the early church just always met in small homes. Uh, they never had a, a large facility. Well, they did. They had the temple. And they gathered by the thousand. This is happening after Acts 2 when 3,000 were added to their number. And they said, hey, let's all, we can't fit in a house, and we all want to be together as much as possible. Let's just go to the temple, the building's there, we'll gather, we'll do our teaching as best we can, and we'll sort of meet up at Solomon's Colonnade and, and hear about the word. So even in Acts 2, the church was not just home churches, but it was larger uh, bodies. Uh, and very often they met in synagogues and met in other places. Uh, we look ahead to Acts chapter 19, 8 and 9. It says, and he entered the synagogue. This is Paul teaching in Ephesus. He came into Ephesus. He entered the synagogue for three months, boldly uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way for the congregation, Paul just withdrew. He took his disciples and began meeting daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So they said, oh, well, let's meet in the high school. Right? Let's, oh, let's just meet in the school. The principle here is that the church meets wherever it's practical to meet. The church meets uh, wherever it works. And, and this is where we, as people, need to be really creative. We as a church, uh, our church, OVC, this is the first time uh, in our church history when we've met in a purpose-built church building. We, it's fantastic. <laughs> There's speakers that they don't get put away every week. And, and the screens are there every time I come. Nobody's moved them. It's fantastic. It, it, it's amazing, right? There, there's this amazing purpose-built place that we get to meet because it's practical and it's awesome to meet. What happens if this church grows to the point where we don't fit in this place? Hallelujah. It is no longer practical to meet here, right? So we knock out some of these precious walls that we love <laughs> and build some on the side. 
and we donate our money or we do whatever it is or we move back to the high school or we go to two services because it's not about the building, it's not about the pews, maybe we'll take them out and, and, and sell them off and put in some chairs and cram you in together that way. Maybe we'll be three or four services all together and um, building an addition and all those kinds of things. Who knows what the Lord will do, but we meet however it's practical to meet, right? It's not about the building. It's not about the facility. It's not about the stuff. It's about being a people who are called to be together, to be in communion. Wherever we are, that's his church. And so we see in the New Testament, uh, the church is spoken of as a church that's in the city, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, they would meet all together in places where they could at times, and then they would be all in houses at times. But the church is seen through the eyes of Paul as a church that meets in a geographical region. So if Paul is looking to Carlton Place and says the church in Carlton Place, he doesn't mean Calvary Pentecostal and, uh, and uh, OVC. He means Calvary Pentecostal, OVC, Move Church, All Nations Church, the Free Methodist Church, and so on and so on. So there's something about our call to be one church with all of those bodies. Uh, within the region, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace uh, and was being built up. So that's a geographical region about the size, a little bit bigger than the Ottawa Valley. That's one church. And Paul could write a letter to that one church and see that as one entity. And then, of course, Paul always refers to the church as a whole body worldwide. He's saying Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that's not just the church in Asia, is it? That's us too, right? Uh, Be shepherds of the church of God. He's speaking to elders and teaching elders uh, worldwide, right? Every church that's ever been planted. Uh, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So when he says the church, sometimes he means something really big and really broad. And we want to talk for a second about that word that he's using because we can learn something about the church by understanding the word that he uses uh, for it, the word ecclesia. Um, so many of you uh, who are part of OVC, you've probably heard me teach on this, and some of this will be a bit of a repeat for some of you. But we want to understand uh, why Paul chose that word, or why Jesus chose that word, actually, for the church. And we want to drill down into what he meant, what he meant us to learn by his use of that word. Um, The first place where we see that word used actually isn't by Jesus in the book of Matthew. The first place we see that word, and I'll explain this to us, is in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, uh, sometime before the time of Christ, was translated into the Greek language. Um, but wherever uh, the, the word for assembly was used in the Hebrew, and that word was kahal, uh, wherever the word kahal appeared in the Hebrew language, when it, the Bible was translated into Greek, they used the word ekklesia. So that word is used to describe whenever the covenant people of Israel gathered outside the tent of meeting and Moses called them all together and said, hey, you guys need to come and hear uh, what the Lord is saying to the people. You guys all need to listen to the reading of the law and you all need to come and learn and need to come obey. Come out of your tents. Come gather around outside the front of the tent of meeting. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to proclaim to you the word of God as it was uh, delivered to me. And Moses is speaking at that time to the Kahal, that's the Hebrew word for it, but what Greek translators do did was call that the ecclesia. The ecclesia. So if we took every word, ecclesia in the Bible, in the Greek translation of it, and translated it to church, the word church would actually occur 90 times in the Old Testament. There are 90 times where that assembly of the people of God are called together 
uh, to hear from God. So there's a, there's, there's a purpose in that, isn't there? When we see uh, Paul and Jesus using that term, these are people who know the, New, the Old Testament and knew the Septuagint well. And they knew that that word for gathering, that word for uh, a people called together, ecclesia, was a word that uh, they could use to describe what the church should be. So when Paul or Jesus said the word church to his people, to Jewish people, their minds took them out front of the tent of meeting to hear the reading of the law called and gathered together for a purpose. And then for those who weren't in the church and those who didn't have, or, or maybe, maybe I'll just give you a couple of these examples. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.10, the Lord said to me, gather or ecclesia or church the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. So we come, we are ecclesia, we are gathered together to hear something. We're gathered to hear and to worship God and to hear something from him, to hear a teaching from him. Exodus 35.1, Then Moses assembled all the congregation, all the ecclesia of the sons of Israel, and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. We could read it like this. Then Moses assembled all the church of the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. So the purpose of the church, the meaning of that word, is that we are called to gather uh, by those in authority to come and hear the word of God spoken to us, heard what we were called to do. Now, that's what Hebrew people heard when they saw it, but what Greek people heard when they heard that same word, uh, heard something very similar. So you're just seeing a little image of a Greek town. Uh, this is a, a sketch of what the place Colonia Ulpia uh, Trenia man, would probably looked like. And what would happen is when the emperor uh, made an edict or said, hey, there's going to be a census, similar to what Joseph and Mary heard when they knew that they had to come and go and visit Bethlehem, what would happen is that representatives of the emperor would come into that town and ecclesia the people. And that's the Greek word that was used for that. They would say, okay, everybody come. You're going to leave your shops. You're going to leave your homes. You're going to come and gather in the stadium. And the emperor, as emperor's representatives are going to announce some news to you. And you have to come hear it. So stop what you're doing. Uh, let your uh, forge die down. Leave your pottery wheel. Uh, leave your carpenter's shop. Uh, leave your school, uh, leave your house, leave your bakery, stop what you're doing, come together because the emperor with his authority is commanding you to come and hear something that he wants you to know. And the whole town would come and gather together and hear the things that are, that are wanted to know. And so when Jesus speaks to the church, he's saying to us, leave your potter's wheel, leave your bakery, leave your uh, job in insurance, uh, leave your government job, leave your space of uh, doing engineering or whatever your vocation is. Stop that. Don't let that be your focus for this little bit of time, but be ecclesia together, be gathered together to come and hear that the Lord has something that you are meant to know, something that you are meant to hear from him. He comes with authority and you've got to stop what you're doing to come and hear it. The ecclesia is a gathering. It is where we are called out, one, to give homage to a king, like we recognize the authority of uh, not the emperor, but we recognize the authority of our emperor Jesus, our king Jesus. We recognize who he is as a king. 
We're called out of all of the things that we're interested in doing because he's called and he has authority and we must come. We come to hear his commands. We come to hear what his word has to say with us to us. And then we look to be who he's called us to be. We are not only hearing what he's commanding us to do, but we're coming with a commitment to obey what he's calling us to do. And that's what church is for us. When Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 16, and first used that word church, all of that meaning from the Hebrew scriptures and all of that meaning from the Greek culture is what he meant. I'm going to call you uh, to be a people who are going to recognize me as king, who are going to gather to hear what I have to teach, and who are going to do what I'm calling you to do. That's the church. That's the term that Jesus um, built our identity on. And so here's uh, some key things from this text of Jesus' first usage of the word church that we want to we want to pick up. Matthew chapter 16, 15 to 18, he said to them, but who do you say I am? This is uh, when, when they're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, what we'll see later is it's a place where uh, it was just full of pagan temple worship, but they're in the middle of that context. Uh, Peter has just come down from Mount Hermon. Uh, they've just had the, Mount, the transfiguration experience. Uh, he comes down and he realizes that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, so Jesus says to him, who do you say I am? Peter, who's had this experience, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And so we see um, the core of our being, as we talked about, even from the meaning in the text, the Hebrew and the, uh, the Greek text, is that we are a people who have come and recognized that Jesus is the Christ. Now you know Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ means anointed one, right? Anointed king. Jesus, you are the anointed king. The son of the living God. And, and Jesus responds and says, yes, Peter, on your understanding of this, because you have figured this out, because you have had a revelation that I am your king, that I am your leader, that I am your Lord, because you have this understanding on this rock, on you, on your life, I will build the church. What makes us a rock? What makes us something God can build his church out of? The revelation that Jesus is our king. The revelation that we are called to serve him, that we are called to listen, that we are called to be drawn by him into what he is calling us to do. It's a recognition of him as our anointed one, a recognition of him as our king. So that's the first thing uh, we get from it, is that our identity is not in ourselves, it's not in our particular theological beliefs or distinctives, it's not in our personal worship preferences, our identity, our sense of belonging in the church comes from something that is far more powerful and far more uniting than our personal preferences. It comes from the reality that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are his people. 
The second thing we take from the text comes from the context. You, you remember I mentioned that, in, that this happened in Caesarea Philippi. Like there could not have been a more pagan or ugly or evil place for Jesus to say, here's where I'm establishing my church. A place, and you can see from the images, uh, that's a representation on top of what it probably looked like. Again, sort of Greek temples. Uh, those would have been places where there would be sometimes even human sacrifice, where there would be temple prostitution. Uh, there would be a sacrifice to the Greek gods. Uh, the cave there is called the Cave of Pan, uh, the Greek god Pan. Um, and it, those caves are were, were thought to be gateways to the underworld, gateways to Hades, gateways to hell or the gates of hell, right? That's what that place was called, was the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. And so right there in that most wicked of place, Jesus gives Peter a revelation that he's the Christ. And he says, Peter, on this rock, on this stone, in a place like this, in a dark and wicked place like this, even in a place like this, I can build my church on you. And not only will the gates of hell not knock it down, that's not what the language there means. The gates of hell aren't, aren't going to knock the church down. It says the gates of hell won't prevail against the advance of the church. The church is not defensive. The church is on the offense. The church is not meant to be a body that is cowering in the corner. We are meant to be a body that is going forth into all the earth with the power and love of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, bringing light into dark places. And the gates of hell will not withstand against it. Will we be the church? We can't be that kind of church if we're consumers. And if we're just attracted by every shiny thing we see. We can only be that church if we're a covenant people. Committed to one another. And following. And beyond that, like uh, if you look at that, that text. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. He's doing something really interesting there. He's mixing some metaphors. You know, no uh, Roman emperor would say, hey, let's just build... Um, an ecclesia. Let's just call everybody together and we'll announce something to them and just make them stand there and stay there forever. Everybody goes back into their homes and goes about their business. Maybe with new instructions, but they go about their business. But, but Jesus really mixes two metaphors there and says, not, not only am I calling you out, but I'm calling you out not just to a temporary meeting, not just to come and hear something and then go back to your own life, but I'm calling you to something that will be built, something that will stand, something that will be anchored together, something that will be held, something that will be an edifice that will not be shaken. I'm not calling you to in and out and in and in and out and temporary commitment to church, temporary commitment to the body of Christ. I'm calling you to be uh, stuck together, mortared together, built into something. By the time we get to First Peter, he's saying it like this. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are being built into something that is meant to endure. 
something that's meant to stick together, something that is meant to be uh, for eternity, not something that you commit to as long as it feels good and meets your needs. Right? You're called to be built into something. Hope you're feeling something of the weight of calling and the significance of this, a sense of purpose. All of this to say church is not a building you attend, it's a temple you're becoming. It is not something you attend, it is something you are, something you're being built into, something you're coming. And we're not just stones that are sort of piled uh, on the ground in a heap. We are held together by the Holy Spirit. We are mortared together. We are glued together. Like stones in the building of a wall uh, will topple if the mortar isn't strong between them. Uh, P.T. Forsyth says it like this. The same act that sets us in Christ, our profession of faith and our baptism, the same act that sets us in Christ sets us also in the society of Christ or the body of Christ. To be in Christ is in the same act to be in the church. You can't be in Christ and not in the church. It puts us in a relationship with all saints, which we may neglect to our bane, but we can't destroy him. You can't be a Christian and not be related to the church. You can ignore that reality uh, to your peril and to your loneliness and to your brokenness. But you have to recognize you are uh, together. We cannot destroy. We cannot be in covenant with Christ and not be in covenant with his church. You are in covenant with the church of God. Whether you know it or not, whether we know how to express it or not, whether we know how to teach about it or not, uh, whether we have uh, you know, covenant documents or not, we are in covenant uh, with one another. And there's so many ways uh, to, to talk about how this is expressed in the New Testament. So many examples of that commitment that we're called to. But I want to just take a look at it just in the communion service for a moment. And, and I wish I'd actually prepared for us to do communion today. Um, but we'll have that coming in a couple of weeks. But let's just walk through the importance of uh, communion and covenant and that language expressed uh, both in Matthew 26 and, uh, and in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So in Matthew 26, uh, Jesus has the disciples all gathered together in that upper room, probably similar to that image that we saw earlier. He has them gathered together. He does the bread, and then he takes the cup. And then when he given thanks to them, saying, drink from it all, all, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so through what he accomplished on the cross, by the shedding of his blood, and the forgiveness of sins, those of us who have received that incredible gift of what Jesus did for us, we receive his blood, we receive his mercy, we receive his salvation. But it's not just the blood for us. It's not just the blood for me. It's not just the blood for me as an individual. It's the blood of covenant. It's the blood of covenant with God and a covenant uh, that holds us into the life of the church. It's the blood of covenant with one another. If we are part of him vertically, we are part of his body horizontally. 
We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, the same teaching. Paul is passing it on as he's heard it from the other disciples. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we remember the teaching that's around that. Very often we don't take the time to do that whole teaching in 1 Corinthians 11. And we focus just on that meal moment. But Paul is teaching this in the context of wanting to address a problem with disunity in the body in Corinth. He's wanting to address a problem with uh, that body being uh, full of factions and divisions among you. These are just phrases uh, from uh, earlier in that chapter. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. They're not recognizing uh, a common need. They're not recognizing a common purse. They're not sharing their food with one another. They're coming highly in, in a highly individualistic way, uh, in little groups and factions, and, and they're not united at all. And Paul says, hey, what Jesus did when he died on the cross, and what Jesus did when he instituted this thing that we celebrate every uh, month, or, or what the early church celebrated every single time they got together, was he recognized that there's a covenant here, that there's an agreement here, that this, this identity that you have as being united with Christ means that you must also be united with one another. It means you must also be united with one another. What he's saying is you're, you're forgetting what your fellowship is about. It's based on covenant with me. It's not your personal preferences about what you bring to the table in terms of food. It's not about your particular theological distinctives. It's not about your political faction or your economic strata. Uh, you don't drink of this covenant to celebrate your individuality, though we do recognize that we each must make a decision to follow Christ. But we drink... Our, um, this wine as a, as, as a shared cup of covenant with one another. And he goes further in the subsequent verses after the teaching. He says this in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we do communion together, when we celebrate our relationship with Christ, when we uh, celebrate that that covenant with him is also a covenant with one another, we do it and we need to discern, to see the body. We so often when we do communion, and this is so often my posture, when I do it, is it my, even my posture is sometimes so closed. My shoulders are hunched over. I'm meditating. I'm holding the elements. I'm really wanting to know that my heart is right before the Lord. And we see the text saying, examine yourself. But in the immediate context, it's not just examine, like have you confessed all of your sin? I think that's a part of it. But examine yourself. And can you discern, can you see the part of you that is the body of Christ? Can you discern the connection? <clears throat> can you discern that you are not your own? Can you discern that you're in covenant relationship with other believers? 
And, and Paul thinks this is very, very serious. In verse 30, he goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I don't even know what to do with those verses. But there is something about the recognition and the discerning of the body of Christ, our connectedness to one another. This says that if we don't get that, if we don't get that we're protected by our brothers and sisters on either side, we're vulnerable to sickness and disease and death in ways that we don't understand. And again, I can't, I can't begin to say what Paul really meant when he was teaching here. But there is something about that tension between us. If there are factions between us, if there is brokenness between us, we don't recognize that we are one thing, one body. We've made ourselves vulnerable. And we are potentially broken and open to all kinds of hurt. Paul takes it very seriously. And so we ought to take it seriously. We see this uh, in, back in the assemblies of the people of Israel, that when there was grumbling and factions among them, the ground would open up and swallow them, or plagues would go through the camp. There's a judgment that can come on us if we don't love not just the part of Christ that is in me, but the part of Christ that is in one another. We're called to see and know and love. And we're back to John 17. This is Jesus' great prayer for us. I didn't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. This unity this oneness, this covenant that we have with one another, this commitment that we're meant to have with one another, as we said earlier, is meant to be the love that people see so that they can know that Jesus has come. It's our witness. It's our testimony. It's our evangelism. Being one body. And so what we want to do, the worship team, you guys can come forward. We want to um, evaluate that idea of covenant. I want us to evaluate what we think of church. I want you to evaluate what you think of your commitment to it. I want you to evaluate, is, is my commitment to church just too casual? Is my commitment to the body just too loosey-goosey? Like, is it, it, do I value it a two when I need to value it a ten? Do I value the reality? And then not only for yourself, for your own sort of evaluation about your commitment to the body of Christ, will you invite other believers who are on the fringes deeper into that covenant understanding? Not with judgment, not with guilt, but will you go and seek and find other believers who are on the fringe of the church who aren't ecclesying with us and say to them, hey, we have a covenant together. There's a bond between us. We are somehow meant to be more together than we, we, were, we are apart. Would you come and, and, and gather? Would you come and be part of the body? And all of this is, is surrender, isn't it? It's just surrender. Will I surrender uh, my life to you? Will I surrender? Will I commit to your body 
uh, the song we're going to sing uh, has this uh, chorus line in it that is like that goes like this: "There's no compromise. I won't give you just half my life. If it's all or nothing, let it all be for Jesus. Will you let your life be all for Jesus? Will you let your commitment to His body be all for Jesus?" Will you buy in? Will you take ownership in this thing? Will you recognize what he's done for us on the cross and bringing us together? Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.